welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to remind everyone to get signed up for the ABCA Virtual Convention January 6th through the 10th. You can do that at www.abca.org. We've been planning this event since June, and we are excited to get the event going. With our planning, we wanted to get the event as close as we could to the on-site convention. We just finished recording all 36 of our main stage and youth stage speakers here in Greensboro. It will be everything that you love about the on-site with main stage, youth stage, exhibit area, expo theater, and hot stoves. We have over 100 exhibitors signed up, so this will still be an opportunity for you to save on all your needs for your team or your facility. Please support those exhibitors that support us. They are the reason we are able to keep our dues and convention as the lowest of any association. There's so many great opportunities to grow as an educator during the convention. Anyone that signs up will have all the videos in their account a week after the event. The convention area will also be open for six months after the event, so that's a huge plus. Feel free to reach out to me at rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram at RyanBrownlee17, or via the MyABCA app if you have any questions on the convention. This will be something you want to experience firsthand. We're using the hashtag, hashtag in the front row right now. If that's something you like, let me know. As always, thanks for listening to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is baseball coaching legend Jerry Weinstein. Coach Weinstein is the ABCA Wilson Lefty Gomez Award winner this year. There's not a person out there who's done more for driving the game forward. He's an ambassador for the game, not just here in the States, but in the world. His resume in the game reads like a wish list for any coach. College World Series with Miami as an assistant coach. 831 wins, 16 league titles one national championship with 213 players drafted and 28 big leaguers in 23 seasons at Sac City Community College. Player development and coaching at the professional level, managing in the Cape Cod League, coaching for Team USA, and managing for Team Israel in the World Baseball Classic. Get your pad and pen ready because Coach Weinstein has now not stood still in the game and continues to learn. He's the blueprint for how to stay relevant in the game. True to form, he's heading up the ABCA Virtual Convention Catching Hot Stove with panelists Tyler Goodrow, Brian Sienko, Bill Angelo, Colin Wilbur, and former MLB manager Mike Sosha. Let's welcome Jerry Weinstein to the podcast. There he is. Ryan, how you doing, buddy? Jerry, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How was the pitching 360? Oh, it was good. Yeah, well, I just recorded uh, a uh, on, on a Zoom deal for him, and and it was it was very very good. The the clinic was really good. I saw the speakers looked good. So there was no Q and A with it. It was yeah, just... there was there was. As a matter of fact, they they uh, they gave you a specific time when they ran your your presentation. Then right after it, there was a Q and A. Okay. All right. How. So you felt like it went well? I did. I did. Um, on another note, on the catching uh, the hot stove, did I, did I tell you that Mike Sosha said he'd come on with us? Oh, that's awesome. I'll tell you what, man, that the speakers were great here, but um, the hot stoves are lining up to be tremendous 
also. I'm excited. Good. It's getting close. Yeah, now now that we've kind of put the schedule together and seen what it's going to look like, it's, uh, um, I'm getting excited about it. A lot of moving parts to put it all together just because we're trying to make it as, as realistic to the on-site right. one, just with the vendors and all the other things yeah, that I, we I have. I saw the vendor uh, list today. Yeah. Now, will you do the hot stove live? Or yes. Will you pre-record? Okay. Yeah, that that kind of adds a a good portion to it because people will be able to ask questions. They'll have that same kind of interaction that we always have at the hot stoves. So it'll it'll be good. It should be good for everybody. Yeah. Nice. All right, here with Jerry Weinstein. Um, I mean, there's there's too much to to list, but ABCA Lefty Gomez Award recipient this year. So congratulations on that. And I, I thought about this today. You're the man who has forgotten more about baseball than the rest of us know. That's true. Like you are you are the one guy when somebody says that guy's forgotten more about baseball than I know. Like you're the person that that I think everybody thinks of. Well, I think of, I, I've made more mistakes in this game than anybody has made, and I'm, 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 I'm still really dumb <laughs> relative to the game because the, the more you know, the less you know. But uh, there's some truth to all those statements. Just looking through everything that you've done, I thought about that. Is there anything in the game that you have not done yet that you still would like to do? Well, uh, realistic or not, you know, I've never been a major league manager. I've been a big league coach, and I, I would have loved to get a chance to do that. And that, that's, that's not going to happen, but, uh, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I, and, uh, you know, I'm in one piece. I'm, I'm good. Ne- hey, never say never on that. I mean, I, it could still happen. No, uh, highly unlikely. I'm not, uh, it's not on my bucket list anymore or never was on my bucket list. Is that for, uh, I've never had a bucket list for that matter. Well, you're still doing it. I mean, you, you've checked off so many things in the game. Um, you know, that, I can't imagine that you, there are things that, that you didn't set out that you wanted to do that you didn't accomplish because you've done so much. Well, the reality is I, I've never had any written or intended goals. Hey, I'm going to do this so I can do that. I just, wherever my feet were, that's what I did. And if something else, uh, uh, another option came across my plate, then I'd evaluate that at that time. But it was never, I'm going to do this so I can do this. And I just did what... Uh, I was doing at the time and was very happy being where I was. Who inspired you to get into coaching? Well, I'm going to say, this is, this sounds stupid. I'm going to say it was my little league coach. I had a guy and this was just kind of little league was just in its infancy. And uh, this guy was a father of one of my friends. He had just gotten back from Korea and he was coaching our little league team. And I was eight years old and he had a tremendous passion for the game. He had been an ex-professional player before he went, uh, in the service and, uh, and he was passionate about the game. And I think that, that, uh, that really affected me. Then when you got into it, when you were a younger coach, who inspired you to be a better coach? Uh, well, I, everybody who beat me or everybody who was having success, I'm, you know, I, I'm a great observer and, and I really watch uh, the people that are successful, what they do. I paid a, Certainly my college coach, Art Reichel, who gave me a lot of opportunities that probably I didn't deserve. And then at the time, the best college coach in baseball was coaching across town, Rod Dato. I spent a lot of time really looking at him very closely, more at him than, than really probably what I should have been during ball games. And then John Wooden was on campus at UCLA, and, and he was a big baseball fan. And I, I got a chance to watch his practices, 
especially in the fall when we were working out on campus and they had our baseball field was uh, torn down so they could build uh, a poly pavilion. And so we were in the fall, we worked out on campus and, and we lockered in poly pavilion. So after we're done working out, they were always practicing or often practicing later in the fall. And finally, I, I uh, mustered up enough nerve to go in his office and ask him if I could watch practice. And he was very welcoming. And that was something that I did regularly. How did you get hooked up with Ron Frazier? Because for, for me and, and my growing up around it, Ron Frazier and Ron Polk and Skip Bertman, you know, Rod Dado did such a good job with the college game. But I thought those three guys then kind of took the college game to that next step. And can you just talk about Ron Frazier? For me, he he's on the Mount Rushmore of of taking the college game to, to where it is now. I think even college coaches that don't know who Ron Frazier is, they owe him – a lot of credit to where the game is right now. You bet. Um, well, uh, at the time where Dato was the man on the West Coast, Ron Frey, uh, the two programs in the country at that time were University of Miami and USC. And I was at Sacramento City College, and, and it's a it's a weird story. I think it's a weird story. And uh, uh, I get a call, and Skip and I, Skip and I were friends. I, Ron, I really didn't know just kind of, Hey, that's Ron Frazier. Yeah. And we kind of acknowledge one another uh, when he would recruit on the West coast, which was infrequent because Skip did most of the recruiting and Skip says, Hey, I need a first baseman. Is there anybody hanging around? This was uh, after the state tournament during the summer. And, and uh, he says, yeah, I says, I'm going to LSU. And so I had a guy for him who ended up being a really good player for me. He wasn't from my school. He was from another school, but he did not have a scholarship and I knew he'd be a good player for Skip. And so I gave Skip all the information. I hung up the phone and I was sitting at my desk at Sac City and said, hmm, I wonder who's going to take Skip's place. So I called, I called him back and said, Skip, who's, who's taking your place? He says, I don't know. He says, you want the job? He said, oh, are you interested? I said, yeah. He says, and so the next he says, hey, Ron, Jerry Weinstein's on the phone. He says, uh, you, you should talk to him. And so Ron got on the phone. He says, he, and this is typical phrase. You know, he didn't know how things worked in terms of making reservations and stuff. He says, yeah, he says, uh, can you come down tomorrow? And this was in the middle of the week. I said, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll try and get a flight as soon as I can. And I was able to get a flight the next day. And uh, uh, at the time, uh, I really didn't know Ron very well. He didn't know me. And, and I, I told my wife and she says, oh, we're not going to Miami. There's no chance. I said, I've got to check this thing out. This is the best baseball program in the country. And I get there, he picked me up and we spent you know, talking and going out for dinner. And, and we just hit it off immediately. It was like uh, brothers from another mother. We were, we were very compatible. And so that night he says, uh, this was like on Tuesday or Wednesday, he says, can you stay till Saturday? Cause we're going to announce that you got the job. Well, I said, wait a minute. I got to talk to my, I gotta talk to my wife. He said, oh, we'll fly her down here. I said, no, I, I need to go home and talk to my wife. And she was a, she was a surgical nurse in Sacramento and had a great job and she liked it. And we had a really nice house and had, had just a perfect setup, you know, and I'm really rattling the, 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 the environment. And she says, she says, Oh, we, I said, look, we, this is, we got to try this. We've got to do it as, let me see if I can get a leave of absence. I'll, I'll, we'll do it for a year. And then, uh, and then if you don't like it, I don't care what I think, uh, 
we'll, we'll, oh, I lost you there. I'm, Damn. you're still with me. Okay. Uh, okay. Anyway, I said, uh, regardless, I said, no matter what, uh, if you don't like it, if it's not good for the family, we'll come home. And so finally we, we really we reached an agreement. And so, um, I mean, we took off almost immediately. I went down there and worked their summer camps and, uh, it was, this was in July and then school started and, and she was working at a place called Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is a, a teaching hospital down there. And she's an accomplished surgical nurse. And a lot of the things that they were doing as nurses, the interns and residents were doing. And, and it was a pretty tough environment. It was down, it's down where the new Marlin Stadium is. And it's a rough area. And, and so I'd leave early in the morning and she'd come home late and she'd kind of, we'd kind of pass in the night. She'd stop by the ballpark and it was basically just Ron and me running the program. We had a guy named Dave Scott who did the recruiting and did, took care of the camps and stuff. And, and he was kind of in and out in terms of, uh, of on the field. And it was uh, actually basically me in the fall because I remember the first day and I'm rambling a little bit here. You no, no, I, I love these stories. That's why I brought it up. I, I mean, I, I grew up around it and I know Ron Frazier and I want people to hear because I don't, I, the, the younger generation doesn't know who Ron Frazier is and they need to, they need to know this is what college baseball was like. Three guys on staff, one guy doing all this, like guys need to hear these stories. Well, he was a magician and he was his big thing. And he was a great baseball guy. Guys, people don't give him enough credit for being an astute baseball person, but he was good. But his, he was also a tremendous promoter and a tremendous fundraiser. And most of the things that he did in the fall was raise money and promote promote the program. And we had just gotten, we were getting a new uh, artificial surface there. So we were bouncing around in the fall. We played 78 games in the fall, but uh, I remember the first day of practice, we'd go out there and at Mark Light, uh, there there had to be 2,000 people there. I said, Frazier said, what the hell's going on here? He said, oh, they just came out here to check you out. I said, oh, great. So, because he, he put a lot of responsibility on your plate as an assistant. You organized everything. And and uh, and so after the first week, you know, he saw that, well, this guy's going to be okay. He's going to, he won't kill the program. And then he went and did his, but, but he would always come in, come out and he'd show up uh, unannounced sometimes. And so I'd always build in an area uh, time in the practice where he could talk to the guys or do whatever he needed to do with guys. And we had like tw- 25 guys out there and we were really bad. And matter of fact, I went out there and I saw the talent base and, and, and I guess I'm, what I'm saying really bad, really bad wasn't really bad, but it, I compared it to Sacramento city college and we had, our talent base was unbelievable. We routinely have 10 to 12 players drafted and, and we'd have 50, 60 guys out there and they could all play. And we had guys out there that, you know, couldn't play at all, bring their dog to practice or whatever. And, and so uh, we had, we didn't have depth. We had some good, we had some really good players, but we were bringing in guys. I remember we had a catcher. We had one catcher and I'm not going to say his name or where he's from, but he wasn't, Jerry Weinstein, this guy weren't going to work out, you know, Hey, you know, we were working on block. And he said, I don't block. I pick everything. I said, well, we're going to, we're going to try that. He said, no, I can't do that. And, and it was hot and humid. And, and within a week that guy bolted. So we got no catcher. We get zero. We don't, he says, well, so-and-so can catch. I said, Frage. I said, when he was a freshman, he made 30 years at third base and he moved him to the outfield. Now we're going to put him behind the plate 
where he's got to touch the ball over 100 times a game? He says, well, I heard that there's the uh, Camilo Pasquale said there's this guy uh, at that was at New World Center. He's a baggage handler at Eastern Airlines, and maybe he's the guy. So, oh, so our, our catcher at University of Miami is, is a baggage handler. He says, hey, he's, he's playing at Bicentennial Park. Go down and see him play. Well, so I go to Bicentennial Park, and that's down uh, in a pretty Hispanic area. Everything, everybody's speaking Spanish, which is fine. I speak Spanish, and and uh, and he played, and he was a little guy, kind of a pudgy little guy. His name was Julio Solis. To this day, one of the best receivers I've ever coached, and he was great personality, loud, and and so we leveraged him into school and. The day that he played, he hadn't played baseball for like five months. He blows his arm up and he's got a rest and can't do much. So we bring him in. We recruit another guy from the Italian Baseball League, Adrian Gallo. And so, uh, and, and that was, and, and we're, uh, and we start the season and we're, we are not very good by Miami standards. We were like, uh, at the end of the year, we're like 48 and 28. Uh, we had not, uh, played well, uh, and uh, I mean, like uh, Florida State beat us four out of six. University of Florida, I think, beat us all six games we played them. Uh, we're playing at the end of the year, and at that was at the time where uh, they had 48 teams in the regionals. They had uh, eight six-team regionals, and the winners of the regionals go to uh, went to Omaha. World Series, and so our last, our, and I'm and, my, and my, I'm telling my wife, I'm really pretty depressed. I screwed this program up. I they've been in the regionals like 20 straight years, and now I get here, and we're we're not even going to get to a regional. I says, and so we're talking about, and she's not liking her job at all. And, and I promised we'd go home, so we're trying to negotiate whether we'd stay or lot or not. And we started looking at houses, and so our last series, we're on the road. We're going to Oral Roberts and Wichita State. And they had uh, picked 47 of the 48 regional teams. And I guess they're kind of waiting between Wichita State and University of Miami. And so we split a game at, uh, split a series at Oral Roberts. And then we go to Wichita State. And uh, it's the Wednesday night game at ESPN. Frazier and uh, Dato had negotiated this thing and set up a, a weekly game, college game on ESPN. And our game was on ESPN. We had played three there. We were one and one. And we felt like the team that won this might get to the World Series. And so we're just hanging on uh, in the uh, in the ninth inning. And it has been raining the whole game. They're putting, uh, at that time, they called it diamond dry down on the field. or Kitty litter. Yeah, pretty much kitty litter. And so it's pretty slick out there and, and we're just getting ready to spit the bit and, and they get the bases loaded and one out in the bottom of the ninth inning. And, uh, we, uh, they, they hit a comebacker to our pitcher and I'm going, all right, double play. And our guy fumbles the ball, picks it up and throws it home. Well, we had worked all season. Part of our infield was home arm fake to first, reverse the ball to third base. And we're ahead four to three. And so, so least, Never had come up in a game, but we did an infield. Solis has the awareness and wherewithal, comes up, arm fakes to first, and they had put down a lot of new dirt at third base. The guy turns to third, falls down, we back to him, boom, we win. So we get on the plane, we're flying back, and about halfway back to Miami, the uh, uh, 
uh, Captain says, I have an announcement for a group of people on our plane here. It's just been announced on ESPN that University of Miami is going to be the, uh, the going to a regional. They're going to Tallahassee. Well, that's I don't know if that's good news or bad news because at Tallahassee, we got up there. Florida State's up there. Florida's up there. South Alabama, who had an unbelievable team. They had Lance Johnson and Pete Coachman on that team. Both those guys had stolen like 100 bases. Uh, uh, Davidson was there. Uh, I don't remember all the teams, but so in the first game, of course, we're the eighth or the sixth seed up there when we're playing Florida, who was the first seed. And somehow we're hanging in there. We had one really good pitcher. And we're hanging in there, and uh, it's going extra innings. And they made – Joe Arnold was the coach there, and he had made some some pinch hit changes, and they had to make some position changes. And they moved Mike Stanley from catcher to shortstop, and ball goes through his legs, and somehow we win the game. And Florida State loses to South Alabama, and so now they got to play, and and Florida loses, and they're out. That's good for us. And, and then uh, – and, and then Florida State got eliminated, so we're the only Florida team there. And so we're kind of the fan favorites, even though we're, there weren't very many fans there with Florida and Florida State out there. So we end up going through the, the bracket and, and winning, and we've got to play uh, South Alabama. And, and one of the things, we were a very right-handed dominant team. And at the time at Florida State, they had a real short porch in right field, right? The alley in right field was like – 355 or remember because Barnum and Bailey Ringling Brothers the Circus had a training center on the other side and you could see the uh, the high wire and the uh, uh, I don't know what you call it anyway and so we hit a bunch of our right hand hitters really let balls get deep and we smoked a bunch of balls to right center and won a bunch of games not with our pitching but with our ability to, to hammer the ball the opposite field so then we lose to uh, South Alabama and it's a what if game and we end up winning we're going to the College World Series. And so uh, the two happiest people in Florida were my wife. Well, my wife was really happy. And I was, I'd really like Miami I, if it were up to me, but it wasn't totally. It's a family decision. So that uh, before we go to uh, Omaha, I go into Frazier's office. Hey, Frazier, I got to talk to you. And I said, uh, after the College World Series, I'm going home. He said, oh, you're going to go home and visit no, no, I'm going home. He said, what do you mean you're going home? He says, you're the next coach here. I said, I know, but uh, this is not the best thing for my family. And I promised my wife. And he says, I get it. He says, do you know how much I make? And I said, well, money's not that big a thing, you know, for me. And he says, well, I blah, blah. And it was a lot of money, <laughs> you know, especially at that time. And I never even give it, gave it a second thought. And he was great. And we remained the best of friends after that. But I mean, getting back to his, the baseball side, Frazier was a great guy for tinkering with a lineup. You'd go into his room and there'd be like 40 scraps of paper on the floor. He'd be making different lineups and stuff. And he had a great instinct for the game in that respect. But uh, we remained, after that, we remained great friends. I helped him. Uh, I, I taught Brad Kelly. He was a coach at, uh, at uh, Louisiana Lafayette, and the head coach. And I talked him into coming to Miami that he's going to, be the next coach there, which he was, and uh, he didn't want to do it at first. And but Frazier and I were great buddies. And then afterwards, we coached the Pan Am team together in '87, and then the Olympic team in '92. And 
And then when I went to work for the Dodgers and I was a director of player development, I brought him on as a senior advisor when we were in, in Vero Beach at the time. And we remained good friends up until he passed. And, uh, I mean, he was a, he was a marvel. He was that, I mean, probably the most meaningful thing that I did as a coach that, that really broadened my vision on the game and what you could do in terms of promotion and, uh, was being at Miami. Cause I went back to, to Sac city. We built a $5 million facility with no money and just community, you know, just, he always told me, he says, hey, it's just as easy for, for him to say no when he asks for $5,000 as five. He says, he says, go big or go home. And so that really helped me. And then the, from the promotion promotion side, he was unbelievable in terms of, um, it, I mean, the baseball in Miami, it was like, that was uh, University of, of uh, Florida State football. Bobby Bowden and, and Frazier were the two most notable sports figures in Miami because there was no... Pro, there was no uh, uh, pro baseball at the time, and and the Dolphins were just. Of course, Shula was very popular as well, but we would have, we would have. He, he canceled the game one night. It was it shouldn't have been canceled, but we only had fifteen hundred people. He only would sold fifteen hundred tickets, and he'd be out there in the third base coaching box. And I asked our manager, uh, Kevin. I said, Kevin, what is Frage doing? He keeps looking in the stands. Oh, so he's just trying to figure out how much the concession is going to make tonight because Frage paid everything. He paid all the salaries. He generated money for uh, all the scholarships, for all the maintenance. He paid all the costs of the baseball program at the University of Miami. I think we were grossing well over $500,000 at the time. I don't know, but he was, he could juggle a lot of, uh, a lot of irons at, at that time. And he was really good at it. And plus everybody loved him. Uh, he would kick your butt and they would hug him afterwards. And he's the greatest. <laughs> well, I used to win a game. Guy would hate me, you know, and, and but everybody loved Frazier, he, even though, you know, he would win games and they'd make them look bad. But after the game, they just loved him because he treated everybody first class. And I, uh, and that really had an effect on me. And, you know, it's just as easy to treat people good as bad. And, and uh, you know, he always took the high road. Uh, and I, I learned a lot in from him in that respect. You were one of my inspirations. December 2018, I go to the Pitch Palooza and I got a chance to watch you and the Sac City throwing program. So I actually stole the Sac City throwing program and took it back. I was coaching the pitchers at the time. We used it as the second day after start. That's what our starters would use as the second day after the start throwing routine is we started to mix that in. I thought it was awesome. And I did want to say thank you for that because I stole that from you. I, I was I was writing furiously during Pitchapalooza during your, your throwing program. It was tremendous. Well, I stole it from a lot of other people. So feel free to put your name on it. Have no problem with that. But, you know, I, I mean, having done this for over 60 years, I've gotten stuff from everybody. I'm a you know, I'm a, a Franken, baseball Frankenstein. <laughs> I've gotten a little from everybody. I just loved because you mixed you mixed the command component in with it and then some athleticism. I just thought it had everything that you needed for guys with it because still had the command component, but I just felt like there were so many good bits and pieces in there that, that anybody would get better. You know, if you did that over time, you're going to get much better at it. Well, I'm a big believer in, in throwing programs, and I think the pitchers have done a good job. I think we're yet to uh, to uh, really deal with the position players and, and having 
good throwing programs and monitor those throwing programs, I think there's probably a little bit too much social catch and not enough purposeful throwing and, and our position players have to throw better. Uh, even though on the mound throwing a hundred plus pitches a game, it's, it has maybe a bigger impact, but still every position has a throwing component. Uh, you look at the amount of games that are won or lost now by throws that are errant throws by the position players. It, it, it makes a difference when guys can play catch. Yeah. And also rotation and spin axis. And now we can measure that even better. And we've got better tools and teaching aids to, to create better rotation and, and certainly some of the arm strengthening programs that pitchers have demonstrated success with have leaked into position players as well. Do you make your own luck? Um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in Ranch Ricky. He was the first guy that says luck is the residue of hard work. And uh, the harder we work, the luckier we get. Um, I, I think there is a, a, a luck factor in baseball to a certain extent. I think a lot of the Sabre guys would uh, – and, and stat guys and data people would say there is a, a luck factor, but it over the long haul, it gen, tends to even out. But uh, most of the lucky guys I know worked, in, worked hard and worked intelligently. What was your inspiration to start doing videos on Twitter? Because you're the best Twitter follow that I have. I follow a lot of people, and I, I do. I, you're you're uh, head and shoulders above everybody else because it's always positive. It's always great content. So wh where was your inspiration for starting to do videos on oh Twitter? Oh, my God. I was a nerd. I had no, no idea. And I wrote my, I wrote a, a catching book and, uh, and I was talking to, uh, and, you know, I just wrote it cause I wanted to get it out there. I think I thought I had something to say and I was writing it on buses while I was managing in professional baseball, something to do. And, and so I wrote the book and I was talking to Alan Jager and, uh, and he said, you wrote a book and, and yeah, is it good? I said, yeah, I think it's pretty good. He says, uh, what, where's your website? I'd like to look at it. I said, nah, I don't have a website. He says, uh, do you tweet? I said, Al, I have no idea what you're talking about. And this was probably 10 years ago. And uh, he says, you're, you're a dinosaur. He says, I'm going to help you. And so he, he, he helped me set up my website. And then he showed me, you know, I'd call, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? I'm looking so right I, now. You joined in December of 2013. I'm looking at your Twitter page right now. So right. December of th 2013. Seven, okay, seven. Okay, it's, it's, it seems like longer. Anyway, so uh, I would ask, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? And then for, finally, I learned how to insert videos and stuff like that. And really what I was doing was I was just putting little snippets from the book to promote the book. And, and I'm a bad promoter. I don't, you know, I, I mean, my wife was mailing them out. And now I got another guy that does it for me. That's really enhanced my production, but I don't do anything. And I didn't write it to make any money. I'm a bad promoter in that respect. And so uh, uh, then I started to get people started me, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? So I started expanding my Twitter, my tweets, to more than just catching, even though probably 50% of it is on catching, but uh, I start talking about base running and bunting and hitting and pitching and, and just general mindset stuff. And I know I see some good, I'd enhance it and put stuff on. And, and I, and I, it's really, I think uh, I it's payback time. And I, I've only been, you know, I I've been taking, uh, I've been withdrawing for like 55 years. And now the last seven years, I'm trying to make a few deposits in, to help people help the game and help their players and help them be better coaches or just throw out my opinion and, 
And uh, I've got- Hey, you gave me some credit with probably guys that played for me at Western because we use suicide squeezes. So I'm sure they're like, Coach Brownlee's crazy doing all these suicide squeezes. So when you, you put out the suicide squeezes the other day, I was like, thank thank you for Coach Weinstein. He's validating suicide <laughs> squeezing. Yeah, I, I just, uh, every day I, I, I make a point of putting at least one tweet on there. I, that's my routine. I get up in the morning. The night before, usually I'll pick out a video and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take the video and I'll put it on or a picture or something. And then I write it up. And if I see anything else during the day when I'm, cause I've got a lot of free time right now with the COVID and everything. So I'm spending a lot of time doing zoom stuff like this and, and, uh, going through the internet and, and reviewing material and trying to get better in, in certain areas. And so maybe I'll put more than that on. And now, now I started out and now I've got like close to 50,000 followers. And, uh, they, and, and I think that I'm helping some people and, or at least stimulating some things. You are. I mean, it, it's tremendous because it's great content. Um, I love that you put descriptions in there and you have so much value. I, you're a baseball guy. You're not a catching guy. You're a baseball guy. You've been around it your entire life. So, you know, baseball, you, it's not just catching, you know, so you have, you have a lot of value and you see the game different. You have so much experience in the game you can help the younger generation of coaches because you have so much so much experience in it because you see the game differently than than when you were 22 or I was 22 you see the game differently as you get older and people need to hear those those things well i'm i'm not trying to be the smartest guy in the room but i, I truly and it sounds kind of sappy that uh, you know my goal from here on out and probably for the last 10 years and maybe even before that has been to help people get better and help people achieve their, their goals. And I've always felt that when my players, <clears throat> you know, I, I've got satisfaction because of the accomplishments of the players. And, you know, I've always told them that, Hey, my job is to eliminate my job. You know, this is not a, a codependent environment. This is you moving on and, and accomplishing good things, whether it's, it's in baseball or athletics or in coaching or business, what, whatever it happens to be. Well, and you can add a professional actor now onto your credits oh, as no, well. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my acceptance speech. Oh, it's beautiful. I'm like, he can do everything. There's a guy that can absolutely do everything and, and do it well. You know, the Baseball America Tony Gwynn Lifetime Achievement Award winner, and now the Lefty Gomez Award recipient for the ABCA, which is a huge award for us just because it, it, it's international. It's it's national. It's it's someone that touches all different parts of of baseball. What what about those two awards, and what's it mean to you to win both those awards? Well, uh, somewhat embarrassing. You know, there's a lot of good people out there, and I my my joke as well. They ran out of people, and I'm just the oldest guy left in the in the rock pile. Uh, but I, I mean, really, I was the Tony Gwynn Award shocked me when when. Uh, J.J. Cooper called me from Baseball America. Yeah, he says, we were talking about Tony Gwynn Award this year, and yours is the only name that came up. I said, what? He says, I said, uh, really? I said, because uh, it, it, it's a relatively new award, obviously, since Tony passed. And I said, an award named after Tony Gwynn? I said, Who were, who's gotten it so far? And uh, at that time, Cal Ripken, Cal Ripken got it. And I'm getting an award that named after Tony Gwynn that Cal Ripken got. And Tom Kochman had gotten it. Who's a great scout, minor league manager, and and I said, "Holy cow, that's this this is really embarrassing." <laughs> I don't I don't know what to say except 
Thank you. That's very nice. And then I, I really felt the same way about the the Lefty Gomez Award. I think there's so many deserving people out there, but I I'm happy to get it, and I'm I'm thrilled and and uh, well, and it's fitting. Wil- Wilson is the sponsor of the Lefty Gomez Award, so being a the catching guy that you are, it's fitting that Wilson is is our sponsor for the award. Well, it's interesting when I caught, uh, which is a generous term of what I did back there, but. Uh, I used a Rawlings, it was a no-break Rawlings HOHX, and then soon thereafter, probably after I stopped playing, they came out with one-break gloves and uh, the Wilson A2000, and I had, you know, and I, and I caught a lot of bullpens when I was early, early in my coaching for my pitchers and stuff, and so I always used a Wilson A2000. That was my uh, first glove. The first glove I that was not a hand-me-down for my brother. My brother's four years older. That was my first glove that my dad gave me was a Wilson A2000 catcher's glove. And I spent months breaking that thing in, getting ready for Little League. I, when he brought that glove home for me, I, I couldn't – I slept with it. I smelled it. Like, that glove for me, it was the best thing that I've ever gotten because it wasn't a hand-me-down for my brother. Well, that the, – the Wilson catcher's glove with one break – uh, change the game uh, for catchers because it used to be a two-handed thing because you had that basically a, a donut back there and and now you could catch everything one-handed and protect yourself and do a better job of controlling the ball made a big difference in the in the in the position. I put. Are you the epitome of a Rolling Stone gathers no moss? Well, uh, I, I move around. I, I, I think uh, moving target <laughs> would be a better analogy. And, and I guess in the Rolling Stone piece, I'm kind of like Sisyphus rolling the stone up and up to the top of the, the boulder, up to the top of the hill and rolls down. I keep pushing it back up to the top, keeps rolling down. And uh, I think that I'm a, uh, you know, it, it's a popular term right now, but I do have a growth mindset. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to learn more. I'm trying to learn more so I can import, import, impart more uh, intelligence into my coaching and, and players. And, you know, cause I still, I still have a fair amount of contact with the Rockies in player development and scouting. And then uh, kind of uh, bounce back and forth to the Cape and, and uh, back into professional baseball or into the WBC. And then, I'm on the USA Olympic staff this year. Hope we need to qualify yet, so we'll see. Well, you're a great example of a coach that's been in it forever, but you haven't stood still at all. You know all the new technology, like you know all those things. What are some of the keys out there for somebody that's maybe trying to dive into all this stuff that has no experience with it, with some of the tech stuff that that you're using? Go slow. Go go slow. You know that that's the biggest thing for me, and then really the players know more about the technology, especially if you're a newbie, they, they know a hell of a lot more than you're going to know. And th- that's both a good thing and a bad thing. And, and I think more than anything else, you know, I'm a filter for the players because they get so wrapped up into the, uh, in, into the in, in, in internalized things so much that, uh, that they get vapor locks sometimes. And so sometimes you just have to, you know, what are those conversations like for you to get it? Well, and I think you saw it with video forever. Guys would get so enamored with watching the video or, or the mechanics. How do you talk a player back from when they get to that point? Well, I really don't. I, but the way I coach is more external focus than anything else. And we try and create a drill environment for those players and with a goal. And then the focus is on, 
even though there is a process to the outcome, it's more on like we focus on ball flight because that's what you're trying to do as a hitter and a pitcher. We focus on ball flight. And once we have the ball flight, you know, can, and, and we, we uh, uh, hypermyelinate it in your system where it's, you can repeat it and it translates into the games, that's, that's more where our focus is. So the, the being creative in the way you design uh, the developmental performance things uh, as opposed to, to uh, biomechanic analysis where your body parts are, things like that. And so uh, I think the, the body and uh, athletic body is capable of really organizing itself. And that's kind of based on the Bernstein principle. At Sac City, how long did it take you to really get it going there? Did you get it going early or, I mean, what, 29 big leaguers? I mean, how long did it take you to, to get it going at Sac City? Well, they had, I came into a, 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 they had a pretty good program. Not the type of program we had at the time because uh, Northern California and Southern California was different in the way, at community college, the way they approached the game in Southern California guys got after it. The template down there was Wally Kincaid and Cerritos College, and they were recruiting heavily and playing year-round. In Northern California, uh, it was basically, uh, well, you start in January, and then you're done in May, and, and then we'll see you next January. Well, that's not the way. I brought the Southern Cal mentality. We're going to play, and we played in the end, we were playing over 100 games in the fall, probably more than that, because we were playing double headers with two teams every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then practice the other four days. And, you know, sleep was the enemy. <laughs> I wasn't very good on regeneration at that time. I didn't understand it. And then I was in a town that really one was unique in that I could honestly say that baseball was the number one interest in the town. It was a big coast league town. There were a lot of uh, minor leaguers that lived there. Uh, the high school coaching was really good. American Legion baseball was huge. And uh, we just got, we got ahead of the curve in Northern California and in, uh, in the Sacramento area. And probably uh, a year, maybe a little over a year uh, that we started uh, getting all the best players. And, and then we, then probably, in seven or eight years, we were not only getting the better players from Sacramento, we were getting the better players from Northern California. And our talent base was, like I said, if you have 10 or 12 players drafted every year, you, you just try not to screw them up. But you know, we had, I had really good assistant coaches. We developed tremendous facilities. And now there are a lot of good facilities in community colleges throughout, throughout the United States. But we were just, it was, uh, you know, using that trite old term, perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. I had really good coaches. They stayed with us forever. We had really good players, and uh, and we had lots of them. We probably had, we were probably three deep uh, with really good players. So we had tremendous, and this was really important, tremendous internal competition. You know, they probably played against better players in practice every day than they would in, in a lot of games that we played during the year. And and we were both lauded for that and criticized for stockpiling players. But the community college, we didn't know scholarships. We weren't giving them anything but our time and our expertise. And they chose to come. And, and our second group of players, I remember I had a guy one year. And this is after I'd been in Florida. And I, was, and, uh, I became good friends with Rod Delmonico. And he was the assistant at Florida State at the time. 
And so uh, we stayed in contact when I went back to Sac City and it came out and we used to have three fields going at Land Park in Sacramento and and he's looking around. There were good players on every field, even the third field. And he says, Well, when Tennessee was going to the College World Series, they were doing right. with some Cal- California Juco guys. Same, same thing. He, and when he went there, he continued to get guys from us. And so he got uh, our, uh, this was in 1988, and we had won the, the state championship. And we had kind of a an in and out second baseman, kind of a backup guy. And in the end of the year, he was critical. And uh, his name was Bobby Raboyne. And so Rod gave him a small scholarship and he went there and hit like 420 his first year. And they went to the college world series. And so he says, well, he says, I can recruit Weinstein's backup players and we can get to the college world series. And so, uh, it, it, it happened. And of course we sent some good guys there too. He got Clyde Keller, who was phenomenal at, at Sac city. He was like 28 and two as a pitcher and then 25 and five at Florida state. And, and we had a lot of guys go to Miami, Florida state. And then, LSU with Skip had a lot of guys, and then certainly at Tennessee with Rod when he was there. But that was that connection. So, uh, you know, having having good teams is, is you got to have some good inmates, and we did. And we and, and the competition was good, and, and the coaching was okay, and the facilities were good. So, you know, all the all the factors that that uh, make it for a good program were in place. You've had you've coached a lot of big leaguers, and you were in pro ball for a long time. What's the separator between the guys that that maybe get the opportunity to play pro baseball, and then the ones that actually make it to the big leagues? I think the biggest separator is for those guys that get signed and get to the big leagues. Um, we're really only talking about ten percent of all the guys who sign. Uh, the, uh, the the separator to get in professional baseball is to have a usable skill. Uh, and uh, to get a chance. But then once you get there, it's what you do with, with whatever you have. And, and I think that the, the mental side of the game, the competitive side, every, most big leaguers I know have an edge. Uh, I'm not saying that they're not choir boys, but they, they have a different side to them. They're unbelievable competitors. They have a passion for the game. Uh, they, they work uh, hard, but they work smart. Uh, they, uh, they're pretty single-minded and, uh, they just unbelievable competitors and they're not worried. They're not worried about what anybody thinks about them. They do their things and they're in total control of the controllables. They don't worry about stuff that they can't control, but most big league players, they, they got an edge. And, you know, uh, sometimes we say, well, oh, he's a great kid and he does this and does that. Well, you know. You got to be able to turn it on at some point. <laughs> well, look at Tyson's. I don't know if you watched Tyson's uh, post-fight uh, press conference the other day. It came out. His post-fight uh, press conference was awesome, and they asked him about failure, and it, it was great. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Um, I'm going to put it in one of my presentations, actually. It's a throwing program. It's an infield throwing program presentation. I'm putting it in there because – they just think differently. They're wired differently. The ones that are elite in whatever they do, I don't care if it's baseball or athletics or business, rock and roll musicians, actors, They are the elites are wired differently in between the ears in a good way. Like it works for them and they're just wired differently. Uh, and I'm not in the nice guys finish last category, but the guys that, that finish first, the guys that get to the big leagues and compete in the big leagues, they've, they're wired differently in terms of how they compete and uh, they don't let adversity uh, defeat them. They have tremendous self-belief. I mean, 
you know, a perfect example is Trevor Bauer. If you look at him, uh, he was a kid that was probably as a junior was throwing 78 miles an hour and, and, uh, you know, he worked and worked and worked and everybody made fun of him and he wasn't on the big elite travel teams and all this other BS, but he's carried that chip with him. He, He still has that chip on his shoulder. That's what drives him. It's a little bit like Michael Jordan. You know, he's he's got that chip on his shoulder that continues to drive him to be great uh, because he knows he has to be that way also. And he has a tremendous amount of confidence. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, there's a thin line between arrogance and confidence. And uh, Trevor Bauer has that. And also he's very analytic and, and astute in the way he organizes his body. And he knows he really under... He's a craftsman because he really understands all facets of the game and he understands himself extremely well. And that's why, to me, it's so important for the players to be able to coach themselves because there's, it's so nuanced relative to you know yourself better than anybody. And you know, as coaches, we're just guessing. You know, you're, with, you're in the pro side for a while. And then what, how did you get to Wareham? I mean, what came about? How did you get to the Gateman? Um, well, I, it was something that I had not done and I was, and I was, uh, working part-time and continue to work part-time for the Rockies. And I was, uh, I was in player development. I'd go to spring training in the instructional league and do whatever they, they needed to have me do whatever Zach Wilson wanted. And then Bill Schmidt had me go around the country and see all the top catchers. And I would evaluate them and line them up for them. And then, uh, I had, uh, an opportunity and Mike Roberts uh, had a good connection there in Wareham and we had talked and he's, he helped me connect there because I had talked to him and, and the Rockies thought, Hey, that'd be great to have a staff member in the Cape. And now you get to see players when there are no scouts there. What are they like when no one in, in their mind, no one is really evaluating them or the same guy or, you know, is it a charade? And so I've always, uh, you know, that was the, the Rockies have been great in terms of supporting that. And then one year, uh, they needed someone to go in and manage in the Eastern League. We were uh, starting in a new facility in, in Hartford, and uh, and they asked me to, and I wanted to, and they I went back and I managed for a year, and then went back to the Cape. And now, hey, did you leave so Don Snedden could win a championship? You bet, I teed it up for him without a doubt. No, he helped me the he helped me the one year, and no, Don Don's great. He does a super job. Did you have more fun coaching Team Israel or Team USA? Um, I hate to say one or the other. I, enjoy, I enjoyed them both, but uh, uh, I would say Team USA was great. But in, 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 they were di- they were really different. What, what were the differences between the two? Oh, well, the Team US Team Israel, it was hard to get players. I mean, there aren't there aren't the the, the multitude of players that you, the access that you have access to in the USA, like we're trying to get, we're trying to get players. I mean, <laughs> I well, cause you want to be competitive. I mean, you don't want to run a team out there that's not competitive. So you're trying to find well, the best players you can. We wanted to win. And yeah. so we had yeah. a lot of older players, but I'll tell you one story. It's pretty funny. And, uh, we really didn't have a shortstop. And, uh, and so, I, there was a guy named Alex Jacobs who was a scout for Houston at the time, and uh, he's a Jewish guy, and he was healthy. He was great. He really helped me in player procurement. We were looking for players everywhere, and he was he was going through every minor league roster, looking at names, and you know, obvious Jewish names, or, or obviously not a Jewish name, or maybe this guy's Jewish because his dad is 
Hispanic or whatever, and the mom's Jewish. And so, well, yeah, you don't know. I mean, you're not, you can't tell somebody like you, you don't know, like it's not a, you know, it's, there's no deciding factor for who's Jewish and who's not Jewish like that. Right. And the fact is that for the WBC, all you need to have is, is like a, a, a grandfather or grandmother or father or mother. And, and so he's looking and he calls me one day and he says, Hey, he says, do you know, Scotty Burcham? I said, not really. He says, you know, he's a shortstop at Asheville. Uh, and, uh, is he Jewish? I said, yeah, Bertram, I don't think so. He says, look at, he says, I looked at his mother's Facebook page and he's got to be Jewish. So (laughs) I laughed my ass off. And so I said, well, I'll call and find out. And so I call our manager there, Joe Mikulik. I said, Joe, this is going to be the stupidest phone call you ever got, but I want you to ask Scotty Bertram if he's Jewish. And, uh, so he was in the locker room and he, hey, Bertram, come in. He says, are you Jewish? He says, well, kind of, my mom's Jewish. And so that qualified him. And so, and he was huge because we played, uh, he was huge in the uh, qualifier in Brooklyn. He caught everything and he got numerous key hits. And then when we went to Korea and uh, Japan, uh, he, uh, we played on turf, which was perfect for him because he wasn't, you know, the speed guy, but he got to every ball and made, you know, he made the average play as good as anybody. And he got, he got, well, he won two ball games for us in, in Japan, just with his execution, uh, an infield hit and a squeeze bun with the bases loaded. And they, and to Taiwan threw the ball down the right field line and we scored three. And, and, but that's, that's kind of how we got guys. Like I called, uh, the other one was Jason Marti, who had been retired for probably two years. And, uh, and I called him like 30 times, no return call. So I said, screw it. I'm going to call him one more time. And he, cause he lived in Staten Island and the qualifier was in Brooklyn. And so finally I get him, he's in Disney world with his family. I say, and I had seen, they had an alumni team in Wichita and he had played in one game. He pitched six innings and then played the outfield. It was a 15 inning game. And I knew he liked to hit and play defense and stuff. And so I said, hey, look, it, you can live at home. Just come up, pitch a couple games for us. It's like a 45-pitch max. Uh, there's a pitch limit or 55, and, and you can stay at home. And, and uh, he says, just do it for the qualifier. And so, okay, I'll do it. And so if you know Marquis, Marquis doesn't do anything without preparation. He was ready, and he came in, and he, like, pitched 10 innings and gave up nothing. One of his, one of his criteria was, if I come – I want to be in a hitting group every day and I want to take ground balls at short. I said, Hey, whatever you need, you just let me know. And he was, he was a red hot on that team. And he was, he was a hundred percent all in, which made it, you know, for the other younger pro guys who maybe this is not a cool thing to do, you know, almost too cool for school. He, he was so enthusiastic and so participatory. And so he was big. And so after we qualified, he says, well, I'd love to have you, for the actual WBC, he says, oh, I'm in, you know, and he had no intent on doing it. And he was great in Korea and Japan and pitch well. And he embraced the young guys, took them out for meals and, and brought pizza into the, for, uh, into the clubhouse. Uh, he was great. And so, and obviously you can tell that that, those are the type of experiences that were very rewarding. But uh, the two Olympics, the one in Barcelona were, where Frazier was the manager and then the one in, in Atlanta, which was phenomenal, 
where uh, Skip Bergman was the, where the head coach was really, we had great staff with Polky and Dave Snow and Rich Alday and, and Ray Tanner. And it was, it was really good. What are your biggest differences with coaching now as when you first started? Um, I, I don't, I don't coach a whole lot differently now than I did then. I, I hear all kids are different today. I said, well, Hey, the ones, the passionate kids that like to play, they're no different than we were when we played. And, you know, maybe you, you, you gotta be, uh, you gotta have, you gotta have information no matter what you just can't spitball stuff and spray gun stuff and hope it sticks, you know, you, and you gotta be fallible because it's not an exact science and, you know, you, you gotta, Hey, we're in this thing together. It's, it's a, it's a cooperative effort and I don't know everything, but we're going to figure it out together. And, and uh, we may have to try some stuff that we're not sure is going to work or not, or, or, or don't do anything. You know, a lot of times doing nothing is better and, and we're in no rush here and, and uh, you know, just open the lines of communication. And, and I think the biggest thing is having good information and not forcing it upon people and, and where it's a true symbiotic synergistic team type of development process and, and being transparent and being honest and above all being <clears throat> being uh, confident uh, coaching caution out of your players instead of into your players and and we're going to fail and we're going to um, we're going to have to make adjustments and uh, the adjustments are based on on you not on me it's, it's all about you and and then giving them the credit for for that not taking credit away from from players do you think that that's key to being a great coach is being vulnerable with your players? Absolutely. Absolutely. Self-deprecating humor is probably way up there on the top of my list uh, with players, you know, being vulnerable and Hey, I was a terrible player and, uh, and I, I'm an idiot. Basically I've screwed up more guys than have played probably. And, but I'm, I've made a lot of mistakes. I don't make as many now and we're going to do this thing together and, and, but also being honest too. And Hey, I think, you know, that you're, if you did this, this might be better. And, and you're, you know, I just tell them, I, but in a positive way. What made a great assistant coach for you when you're head coach? Well, I've been a bad assistant coach, so I can tell you at times, at times, what, uh, you know, early on, <laughs> this would skip told me, says, Hey, assistant coaches, they got to be able to throw BP and have a truck. And, but, uh, I just, uh, I, a, a good assistant coach is, uh, is, uh, is loyal, but, but, uh, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of the term, uh, where you're, 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 you're loyal to that coach, but it, it's, it, it, when something isn't right, you're not afraid to tell them there's a term for it. I, I, George Horton and I talked about that a little bit where, you know, outside the office, you got to be loyal, but inside the office, when the door, doors are closed, you can, you can get after each other a little bit if you need to. Right. And also, which I wasn't very good at when, when you, you think or know you're right. And, and the head coach says, well, you may be right or, but this is the way we're going to do it. Cause I'm most comfortable with that. And sometimes I wasn't very good at that. And uh, not frequently, but uh, and, but when I left the, the when I left the room, I did it. Whatever the whatever the, the people in charge said, this is the way we want it done. And I did it that way, just like it was my idea. So in that sense, it was good. Loyal opposition—that's what it's called. Loyal opposition. 
coaches that are looking to get into it, what are some recommend, re- recommendations that you have for coaches that are looking to get into coaching right now? Well, learn as much as you can. The man with the most information wins. Put as much stuff in your files cabinet and get your get your ideas out there. I think social media is fabulous. There are a high percentage of guys in professional baseball today that got there because they got their information out there through social media. Uh, don't, you know, if you can, volunteer. I know early on I, I coached teams. And it cost me to coach teams. Me you too. Know, so, I paid my yeah. first summer coaching in New York. I paid. I lost a lot of money that summer to coach yep. that first yep. summer in New York. But I would I would go back and do it again. Yeah, me too. If but of course, if you got a family and kids, and like I was doing it when I like uh, <laughs> another crazy stupid thing that I did is right out of uh, UCLA. You had to in California you had to take an extra year to get your teaching credential. And I was working on my master's, and so I get. Uh, I get a job and I uh, and I get married and and uh, uh, in in three months my wife was pregnant and I'm at, at Pioneer High School and uh, and uh, I really and I was driving like 50 miles a day and going to finishing up my on my master's at night and I said this isn't what I want to do and we've got no money and, uh, and I remember I the principal came out one day to baseball practice and I said. Uh, this was in, in the late in the fall after I'd coached football. And I said, Oh, Jack, good to see you. I said, I just wanted to tell you that next year, uh, I'm not going to come back. I'm going to go back and finish up on my master's. And he thought it I meant January. He says, you're leaving in January. I said, no, no, no. In June, after the, the year is over. And so I quit. I took my retirement money out of the California state retirement. And I got about six jobs working recreation department. And I coached the freshman team at UCLA, which just basically paid for my school and I had I was officiating and we had no money and we had just had a kid <laughs> and, it, and and so then I'm trying to get a job and in June <laughs> I've sent letters out everywhere and <clears throat> in June I don't have anything and and uh, the, the the head coach at UCLA Art Reichel he says uh he says you got anything I says no he says you want to coach at Santa Monica High School he says and which was good right in my backyard, you know, we live right in West LA. I said, yeah, sure. So he takes me over there and one of his ex players was the superintendent and or assistant superintendent. And they hired me that day. I said, Hey, you got the job. The next day I get a call from Gary Adams and, uh, and Gary was at, was the assistant at UC Riverside, uh, for Don Ed, Dr. Don Edwards. And he says, Hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to, uh, uh, Dominguez Hills, I think it was, or, or, or maybe it was, I don't know if it was somewhere, somewhere. and uh, he had gotten a head job. Maybe it was Irvine. I'm not sure. They were just starting a program. So he says, you, do you, do you, Don wanted me to call you and see if you were interested in the job. I said, how did Don know me? He said, oh, he knew you from UCLA and blah, blah, this. And I said, well, I just accepted a job at Santa Monica High School. He says, well, come down and interview for the job just, just, to, just in case. And so I interviewed for the job and they offered me the job. And I I remember the guy's name, Mr. Dr. Linda Bloom. He was the head of the P department. He said, well, we'd like to offer you. I said, well, uh, I just verbally accepted a job at Santa Monica High School yesterday. Uh, I, I don't know what to do. I said, my gut feel is I gave my word I'm going to do that. He says, look, he says, you're just starting out in, in, in this field and in, in this profession. He says, when you when you make a commitment to do something, you, you probably need to do it. We will definitely hire you, but uh, that would be my advice. And so 
I went to Santa Monica High School and it was a great job. And I liked it. Glad I did it. You talked about going slow earlier with the amount of information that's out there. So if I'm going to dive in first somewhere, tech side, fundamentals, movement, or strength and conditioning, if I'm a young guy and I, I want to try to focus in on one of those areas, where's the first place that maybe a coach should dive into? Well, the fundamentals of the, of, of the movement skills of the game, you got to be able to, uh, from a mechanical standpoint, understand what what looks right and what looks wrong and, and how to correct it. And then from there, then you build on the, on, on the tech side. Now, maybe early on, like I, I mean, I've used, I've used video since uh, I was coaching in 1966 and I had played football and, and was tied into video and we were using super eight. And, and so video was a big part of my coaching and, and, uh, and it, it busted a lot of myths that people were talking about in terms of, yeah, you got to get your top hand over when you hit. No, that isn't what happens. And, you know, and I show them and they said, well, that's what it shows in the video, but that's not what I do. Okay. You got me. <laughs> but I mean, uh, right view pro is where I learned the swing over everything and had to rethink how I was teaching guys because that's not actually how I was teaching guys how to hit and what it actually looked like. And, when I was actually starting to input and put our guys in and compare them, that was the neat thing for me that it opened up a lot of things about how the swing actually worked as opposed to what I actually thought the swing was doing. So that was phenomenal for me. But I needed to see that. I think a lot of people are visual learners. I needed to see it um, and have it stuck in my face over somebody telling me. Yeah, I, I and I probably... I just used my little Super 8 for a long time, and then uh, Dartfish and analysis programs where you could go. And and I, I know early on, uh, Polaroid had a camera that you could shoot uh, 12 pictures or 16 at a time. That I that's where I started doing analysis and breakdown. And I was just, you know, I was a, a kinesi. I got my master's in kinesi, and we just started doing a lot more motion analysis at the time. And then I left, and if I had stayed. I think I'd probably been more of a researcher than anything else because I was inquisitive, but uh, I think that... Uh, it's probably helped you a lot as a coach, hasn't it? Just having that, that science background and, and allow you to answer questions and then go out and test those questions. Right, but science is not perfect either, and, and I think that there were things that we thought about you know, in terms of putting backspin on a ball by hitting down on top of the ball that you know, that a lot of biomechanists would say that we find out probably isn't, if you really think about it, it's, it doesn't add up. And I think that even with all the science that we, there's a lot of smart guys out there and there are a lot of smart guys that, that come from other fields. Uh, I think that right now in terms of pitch construction, guys like Dr. Barton Smith and, and how the air affects the ball and movement and seam shifted wakes and things like that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, nerdy stuff out there that more or less uh, substantiates what your eyes tell you in, in a sense. Do you have any fail forward moments? Do you have anything along the way that you thought was going to set you back that you look back now and is maybe one of the best things that ever happened to you? Um, no, not, not, not really. Not, not really. Not, uh, you know, I didn't, I never looked at those things that, that, well, oh, growth, growth mindset, you're going to look at those as learning opportunities, right? 
Well, I, I mean, the only, I mean, the one thing I, I went from Sac City to be the catching coordinator with the Dodgers. And then the next year, I was the director of player development. And I didn't know the, what the hell I was doing. And I lasted there for about three years. And then uh, they had a changeover in general manager and ownership. And they went in a different direction. And, and for me, you know, uh, I just moved on. You know, I became the assistant at Cal Poly. And then I got back into pro ball with, uh, with the Rockies. And I've been there ever since. And, and so I think that, that everything you know, were, we're a compilation of everything that we've done. There are no little things, everything's important and, and they're building blocks. And if you, you make sure they're building blocks and not stumbling blocks, I think that would be, if I would say one, a good phrase. <laughs> if you could go back and, and redo the Dodgers job again, what's one thing that you would switch? Oh, I, yeah, I, well, there's not one thing. I'd switch everything. I didn't. Well, really, what happened is uh, uh, I was the catching coordinator, and and so being the, the 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 most complex in all of baseball is the farm director. There's so many elements to that job; it's unbelievable. And when they hired me, uh, the guy who hired me said, "Look," he says, "You just you just take care of things on the field." and just keep doing what you're doing, coach the catchers too, and, and move players and blah, blah, yeah, I can do that. That's what I did at Sac City for 25 years, you know, move lots of players and evaluate players. And I was okay with that. And the very first day I get a call from the secretary in the office and we had no staff. We had me and then I had the secretary and then a, a, a Joe Boringer who was an assistant. There were three of us in the department. And so the secretary calls and she asked me a workman's comp that question. And so I said, uh, we'll, we'll ask, ask Bill. And she says, well, Bill said to ask you. And so I called Bill. I said, Bill, what the hell's going on here? Where he says, oh, you'll figure it out. He says, I'm busy with a big club. I says, you'll be able to do it. And so a lot of stuff landed in my lap that I had no clue, no experience. And it's pretty nuanced and pretty complex. And so, you know, I was on the field field and, and I'm taking a hundred calls a day. And then when I get home, I got over a hundred emails and, and it was a, <laughs> it was a monumental job that I was not prepared for and was, I do it a lot differently and, and probably, you know, uh, I'd be better. At, I'd be, I, I know I'd be a lot better at it now, but it's, a bit, if you, if you, if you don't know anything about being a farm director, know that it's really a hard job and a very complex job. And it, very important job next to the scouting director the farm director is the most critical guy in the organization what are some evening or morning routines you talked about getting your tweets ready for the next day what are some evening or morning routines that you do that you feel like help you maintain your schedule oh i do this every day for right now especially with COVID. um get up do get on check the internet and check my voicemails and, and texts and, and, and emails, and then put, do my, uh, do my tweet for the day. And then my wife and I go to the beach, take the newspaper, take books or whatever, and we'll stay there and drink coffee and, and usually eat breakfast and for about two and a half, three hours. Then I drop my wife home and I go to the gym and my gym has all the equipment outside or the equipment I need to use outside. So I work out outside for two hours and I come home and eat lunch. And then, uh, I would generally go to Cal Poly or to, uh, Cuesta college 
when they're working out and both of them are down right now, or I would, I've done a lot of zoom stuff like this, uh, before I got furloughed, uh, uh, with the Rockies, uh, did a lot of zoom stuff with, uh, uh, scouting and, and player development with catchers and whoever. And then now I'm doing just a lot of, I'm reading a lot of books right now. Uh, and back up, uh, what's your gym routine? And what do you like doing when you hit when you hit the machines? What do you like? I work out seven days a week, and uh, uh, every other day I, is a is a leg every heavy day with a lot of cardio, and the other days is an upper body day with a lot of cardio on rowing machine and uh, and uh, pre core or uh, I ride the bike a lot. And uh, I was riding <laughs> my, I was riding a bike around town a lot, and I got hit by a car, <laughs> so. So that's so I got a torn rotator cuff. I'm trying to rehab that. You you would have thought baseball would have got your rotator cuff, but it was an accident. Yeah, I got a partial tear in my my infraspinatus because uh, I got knocked off my bike being an idiot on my bike. Are you reading all baseball stuff, or are you reading other things outside of baseball? No, no, I'm uh, I don't read a lot of baseball stuff. Uh, uh, I'm reading a book by Bill Parisi right now on fascia, and uh, I'm reading. Uh, you know, I have some. What do you What are you seeing about fascia? I mean, that's starting to get some play with the the trainers now. What What are you reading about the fascia? Well, that it's important that that fascia is really important relative. There's a lot of uh, proprioceptors in in fascia, and that uh, you have to you have to train the fat. You have to train properly so the fascia system is uh, is an asset. It's like a a wetsuit around on the inside of your body, and so. Uh, I read, uh, I think it was Swar's book called Biotensegrity, which was very, very complex. I have no clue what I read there. But uh, Parisi's book on fascia is, is, is very good. I highly recommend it. But uh, I, I think So that, if you're going to dive in, if a coach is listening right now and wants to kind of dive into the fascia side of things, Parisi's book is where you'd, you'd sign I would up. Say that's, I'd say where, that's where I'd start. And then I'd go into uh, Biotensegrity. Uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, I think the author was Swar, but it's very, very, very technical, incredibly technical. But that's part of coaching, right? Like you're going to take some complex information and then you're going to whittle it down for yourself and then whittle it down even more for the guys that you're coaching, right? Absolutely. But uh, I'm going to have to read that other book about 10 more times before I'm going to be doing much whittling. Who, who got you involved with the ABCA? Uh, let's see. I'm going to say Art Reichel uh, at UCLA, and he was past president. And we'd always get uh, uh, we'd always get the collegiate baseball. Uh, uh, it was uh, Lou's dad and, and Abe Channon, and and so I remember. I think I was still in school when they had uh, they had the uh, ABCA in, in LA. And it was at the Biltmore and Ted Williams. It wasn't, it was a college baseball coaches convention. They only let college baseball coaches in there. And so I don't know if I was just starting coaching or still a player, but it was in the Biltmore and Ted Williams was speaking and I was bound and determined to hear Ted Williams and they wouldn't let me in. And so finally I snuck in there and heard him talk. I'm not sure what year that was uh, exactly, but, but uh, the fact that, uh, that coach Reichel was big and, and there weren't very many clinics at the time. Uh, John Herbold, a, a very uh, successful high school and college coach in Long Beach, used to have a clinic every year. And, and in Southern California, that was kind of it. 
and then the college baseball clinic. There weren't clinics like there are state. Every state has their high school, state high school convention and stuff like that. None of that was going on. And I think that it's great. And, and I think virt the virtual piece of it, I think, I think Zoom is unbelievable. I'm just sorry I wasn't smart enough to buy Zoom stock before the COVID. Well, what happened to Skype? I say this all the time. Skype had a, they had the market cornered for like 13 years and nobody, they, they could be calling it Skype right now for them to not think about like, Hey, this could possibly happen. They just kind of sat on their laurels because everybody calls it zoom now. And it's, uh, it's amazing to think even where we were at before COVID started that the interaction that has happened because everybody's had to pivot because of the pandemic. It's amazing to see how everybody's chipped in and is helping. What are you looking forward to with the, the virtual convention, the ABCA convention besides the well, kitchen I've, hot stove? I've done, the, the fact that I've done probably 20 uh, presentations on zoom with virtual, I just know how I, it'll be just like, instead of sitting in your seat in the amphitheater, you're going to be sitting at your seat wherever at the beach or wherever, and you're participate, you, you're going to get as much probably more because you're going to be able to see the powerpoints and the videos and up close more. And uh, I think that I don't uh, and being able to ask questions too. Like I think that's what's gotten great out of all of this is I think the attendees have a lot more interaction with the speakers than they've ever had before. You, you could maybe pull a guy off to the side, but I think anybody that wants to interact and have questions is going to get their questions answered. No, no doubt, because every clinic that I've done has had an element of questions and answers in that chat area where they have questions. And, and, and you know, and I think that uh, there's less of a time crunch where, you, oh, you got 45 minutes and that's it because the next guy's coming up here. Well, hey, you know, sometimes we get a little long winded and wordy and we run over. Or we, we talk really fast, which I did. I know every every presentation I gave at the ABCA and I've given probably seven or eight of them. I talked way too fast because I always had too much information. I wanted to get everything in there because this would be my only chance to talk on this subject. And I want to make sure that I got as much as I could to the fellas. And so now you probably, your talks are going to be better. Well, the hot stove started with just pitching and we've added, I think we have nine now this year. Can you talk a little bit about the catching hot stove? Ryan Sienko was on with me and Talked about how much the catching one has grown. Oh, yeah. I mean, the last one, we probably had two or 300 coaches there, and we had uh, we had women, the baseball and softball coach. I, it's great, and, and it's so up close and personal and so hands-on. And, and like, we go till 1 in the morning. You want to talk? We're here to talk. You know, there's no timeline here. And, and, and if anybody had a question that didn't get answered, shame on them because uh, my experience that the people that, and I've been, I've always gone to the pitching one. I went to the base running one one year when Matt Tellerico ran it. And I've gone to the infield one when. Uh, yeah, Kai, Kai and Matt are still running them. So oh, it, we're very fortunate that everybody wants to still chip in. It's, uh, you know, I get, I get emotional about it because guys don't have to do that. Guys don't have to help us. And they're still willing to chip in and help us. And it means the world. But it's good. I mean, I sit on those panels. And I learn stuff all the time. And like, I, I, I mean, like, you know, I speak at, I, I kind of pick my clinics based on who's, if I'm in person, based on who's speaking there. Cause Hey, Tony LaRusso speaking, Pat Murphy speaking. I'm, I'm going to, and they asked me to speak. Yeah, I'm going to go. Cause I want to hear those guys. 
and and where you really don't have access to them afterwards because a lot of times they, they don't produce a video or whatever and so uh i i mean i learn something all the time when i go to clinics and like uh you know the one thing i wish there wasn't any overlap between the hot stove lakes where you could go to you know you want to go to the pitching one we're well, spreading it out this year, so everybody's yeah. going to be able to attend. That's the benefit of having the virtual and adding right. uh, on the front end. We've we're able to now space out every day, so there's going to be zero overlap with the uh, with the hot stoves this year. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. I think that's great. I think if you if you go even when you're, we're back in person, that maybe you have a if there's no overlap or somehow you can schedule. I know it's a scheduling nightmare. Because you only have so many days. And, well, yeah. it's more the spacing part of it. Um, you know, that's probably one of the inside things that you don't know unless you start running it. Um, you know, sometimes with the the Gaylord, you only have a certain amount of rooms to work with. But now that the this is the benefit of the convention actually growing, because now the Gaylord knows that we're going to have enough people to show up where we can start to commandeer some more rooms. If anybody remembers Nashville last year with all the dancers going around. Like, yeah. the, you know, if you don't have enough people, then they're going to add other events that you're going to have to piggyback with. But now that we're growing so much, we're going to be able to, to get more space where we'll probably be able to spread it out a little bit more. And probably, I mean, people, you know, when you, when you go to an ABCA, you don't go there to have, oh, I'm going to have good food or now I'm going to get a lot of sleep. So probably, you know, if you set it up where they could get a sandwich and go in and, and even if you had to start one at 11 o'clock, I mean, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because guys are, at least the guys that, that attend those types of hot stove leaves, they're not, you know, sleep's the enemy for the for those four or five days. What are your final thoughts? Uh, I, I really don't have anything. I'm looking forward to uh, things getting better. I'm looking forward to this year relative to uh, getting back out there and having more hands-on with players uh, hopefully we'll have a normal spring training and and i'm looking forward to the uh qualifying for the olympics and and going to japan and and being in the cape when i'm not involved in that and uh and uh just finding some normalcy but with with that being said i'm making the best of what uh what we have right now and 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 being positive you're a great, great example of continuing to learn and not sitting still. And um, you're a wonderful resource to the baseball community. And I thank you. And this means the world to me that you came on. So thank you. Well, I, I appreciate it. And, and uh, that's what I'm just what you said. That's that's who I'm trying to be uh, in my senior years. You're not senior. You got more energy than some 20-year-olds <laughs> that only, I know. I wish number. my 17-year-old had your energy. Well, hey, I, I probably have more energy now than I did at 17, so there's still hope for him. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. All right, all right. There's a lot of guys out there that don't know who Ron Frazier is. And oh, what a shame. What a shame. There'll be some young coach out there that has no idea, and that, that's why I want, I want guys to tell their stories. Like sitting around the campfire, this is what I loved when I was a younger coach of getting in the rooms, listening to my dad talk, listening to the guys in the room talk, because that's that's how I got passionate about coaching was listening to those guys' stories. I knew your dad, and I'm not sure where we had contact. I think uh, maybe we played a well, USA game on his campus. Well, maybe – Bennis wasn't with you guys in 87 because he was on the 88 team, right? He was 
EA. Because no, they played Evans. at Bossy Field. I mean, I grew up in Evansville, and Bossy Field's the third oldest. We, we definitely played in Evansville that year. I think you were at Bossy Field then. I would have been yeah, there in 87. Cause I, Evan, the Evansville Aces? Yeah, and then the the triplets had a team there. The Tigers had a triple-A team there forever. Jim Leland, we showed up in 1979. Jim Leland was the triple-A manager of the Evansville triplets, and Catfish Hunter was on a rehab assignment in 79 there. So I that was my first interaction with Bossy Field was being five years old and watching games at Bossy Field. Well, your dad, I believe, was in the dugout with us for that game, maybe even coach first base or something like that. That's right. So we, had, we had Abbott and we had Tino Martinez yep. and we had Scotty Service yep. and we had Ty Griffin and yep. Dave Silvestri and uh, Eddie Sprague and Livingstone and yep. uh, we had – yeah, I got Jim Abbott pitched. I got a chance to watch Jim Abbott pitch. Okay, all right. Well, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> small yeah. baseball's small world. Soch yeah. definitely wants to do it. He'll That's be awesome. Great. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. Players. I he, I loved the managers like him. Like he was one of my favorite managers. I I didn't care as much about teams. I liked watching players and managers just to see well, how they were going to run things. Really, he he is really a brilliant guy and yeah. he's a real outside the box thinker love it uh, he was when he when we were when i was with the dodgers he was our triple a manager and uh well it seemed like players loved playing for him too they did he and mickey hatcher yeah and uh, <laughs> the staff so that was a, that was a good group yeah well cool all right well thank you very much jerry have a great thank night appreciate it appreciate it. it thanks all right to steal from west blankenship if that episode doesn't get you fired up, then your wood's wet. I was excited to talk to Coach Weinstein because I knew he was going to teach me some new things. I had no idea we were going to get on fascia, though. I look forward to learning some more from him at this year's convention at the Catching Hot Stove. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram at RyanBrownlee17 or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks and leave it better for those behind you.